seeing people flourish. I think that's the most rewarding experience that one can have, right? Seeing that you are able to help somebody to overcome a certain uh, problem that uh, creates a hit of dopamine that I think rarely other experiences, at least for me personally, provide. Mostly Awesome, a podcast about the wins and fails of innovators, brought to you by CDTM in Munich. Welcome back to Mostly Awesome, where we talk to changemakers and innovators with foreign roots. With each episode this season, we want our listeners to not only get inspired by our guest success stories, but also understand all the odds they had to beat to make it big. Today, we're talking to Arseni Virshenin, the Chief Technology Officer at Personio. Arseni is originally from Russia, where my co-host Maria is also from. After doing his bachelor's in physics in Moscow, Arseni decided to get one more bachelor's degree, this time from the Technical University of Munich. Soon after, in 2014, Arseni joined CDTM, where he met Hanno Renner, Ignaz Forstmeier, and Roman Schumacher. And that's where the story of Personio began. Today, Personio is the first European HR tech startup that became a unicorn. It helps small businesses across Europe manage common HR tasks like onboarding, payroll, or attendance accounting. Shortly after reaching a unicorn status back in January, Personia recently raised another $270 million Series E round at a $6.3 billion valuation. Very impressive. Wondering what we discussed with Arseni in this episode? Let's get a quick overview from Maria. The podcast episode is organized in two blocks. Since Arseni traces his roots back to Russia, we started our conversation with some questions about life in there, the formative education years, and also spoke about the Russian startup ecosystem. Arseni shed some light on what he thinks could be done to make Russia a more attractive location for startup and young founders. He also shared his professional journey of how his role as a chief technology officer of Personio evolved with the company and what he learned along the way. He talks about his personal insights. Don't miss that out. Later, we shifted focus towards Personio and how Arseni, along with his co-founders, managed to create a culture that promotes diversity and inclusiveness. For example, we spoke about Personio's commitment towards battling climate change and making sustainable choices. We concluded this episode with Arseni revealing his favorite book, mobile app, podcast, and also leaving us with a rather philosophical question for our next guest. This episode offers a very crisp and interesting conversation with the chief technology officer of one of Germany's most successful startups. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Welcome, Arseni. We are excited to have you here with us today. It's great to be here and thanks a lot for the invitation. Arseni, there is not that much known about your journey from Russia to Germany, where you started your professional career. And in Moscow, you studied in one of the most prestigious technical universities, which is called National Research Nuclear University. And after graduation, you moved to Germany, where you started undergrad studies over again at Technical University of Munich. 
So we were wondering what made you repeat this educational journey, but in another country, and why exactly at TUM? Basically, since a pretty early teenagehood, I got infected with this idea that I want to be in a very diverse and international environment. And while studying in Moscow definitely was a great experience from the uh, diversity perspective, from seeing various ways of doing things and cultures, I felt that I really missed having this experience of being really exposed to a completely different culture. And at that point, I thought that it would be absolutely great to combine that experience of actually following my dream with also enriching my professional experience and going deeper into the computer science, which was uh, the field that I was motivated about since also my teenage years. So those two things coming together pointed me in the direction of Germany. And uh, yeah, couldn't be more happy about my choice. I'm actually coming from a similar background, and most of my peers in Russia with technical majors would call their educational programs very theoretical and abstract. Was it the case for you? And if yes, how did it change at TUM and later on at CDTM? I would definitely confirm that there was much more theoretical prowlness which was required in uh, Russian university. And I see this experience as twofold. On the one hand, this theoretical experience, I think, creates an absolutely great base of how one can tackle deeper problems and develop understanding of domains that are like absolutely out of this earth. Like for me, it was back then quantum mechanics and other very deep physics related subjects. But on the other hand, in certain cases, depending on the study program, yes, it lacks some of the connection to the practical aspects of the industry. University that I attended, and that's what I also missed a bit in the uh, setting of the study program that I was at the TUM, actually had absolutely great professors that were also teaching seminars. And what I felt, it was absolutely inspiring to be in the room of the person who works in Hadron Collider, for instance, right? And can also at the same time teach me absolutely first grade from his experience and perspective problems, while also being able to open up more sort of the door in the depths of how those absolutely fundamental theoretical blocks build up to something like building a Hadron Collider. So from that side, I'm absolutely thankful for that experience in, in Moscow because, yeah, I also see that in, in German university, I wish I would have this type of exposure also. But I also understand that from the purely scalability and economical perspective, where we can also talk about costs, right, of, of universities and so on, it will, would have been hard to uh, scale this. Yeah. Do you think that this strong theoretical background that you got helps you today here in approaching any problem more fundamentally? or maybe solving more abstract problems and not dive deep into details. I'm happy to elaborate on this uh, more sort of if we would talk about what are some of the challenges, I think, with having this theoretical an angle in tackling the problems. But overall, I would say that I think it's the perseverance to find out the answer and really understand all of the building blocks, no matter how theoretical the problem is, that is then transferred into perseverance to figure out what is the business problem and what are all the building blocks, including the people side of this uh, problem that I needed to actually get to a very concrete outcome, despite the problem being formulated in a very abstract manner. So I think that's, uh, that's where it definitely helps to have this experience. Yeah. Thanks for elaborating, Arseni. 
So many of our listeners, besides maybe Maria, don't know so much about the startup landscape in Russia. From your perspective, what are some of the fundamental differences you see between the startup ecosystem here in Western Europe and in Russia? I think Maria might, might be more experienced uh, than me in the Russian ecosystem because unfortunately I was rather removed from the recent developments and overall from the developments in the Russian startup ecosystem. I have roots in the scene in a way where I have been working and starting my career as an engineer with Russian startups. But from what I can say right now, the situation in 2011 is drastically different from the situation right now from all kinds of angles. I can talk about three of them in particular. I think where Russian ecosystem is different from German one is firstly, it's the speed of hiring and access to technical talent. That's uh, one of this uh, major uh, differentiating points where in Russia, it's I think much more prestigious, uh, let's call it like this, to have a STEM degree. And that's why uh, STEM specialties are not seeing as, don't have this brand of uh, being a nerdy niche subject uh, domain expertise and rather seen as something that actually creates a social lift for one. And that's why there is much more talent, a much more diverse talent to access. Plus also speed of hiring is much faster for those reasons, and also from the fact that Russian labor laws are set up differently. So that makes a much more dynamic talent pool from which startups can continuously draw. So this is the first one. The second one is access to capital is a majorly different topic, I feel. So I don't have experience with Russian funds, but from what I can judge is that in Europe and obviously in the United States, access to capital, to foreign capital, is much easier. And this has especially changed, I think, since the events of 2014, when uh, Russia decided for a bit more of an aggressive path towards uh, the world domination. And that created a more legally unsustainable environment in which I can judge investors have harder times trusting in the legal system that would support them to make sure that their investments uphold. That's the second one. Nevertheless, there are actually great Russian funds or funds that focus on Russian ecosystem. It's just that the magnitude of the investments that they do in comparison to the ones that are done in European and United States markets, in certain cases, a magnitude away from each other without looking at stats, right? So somebody will probably have to bring a little bubble with stats if we're <laughs> in the YouTube channel. And uh, the third one that I highlight here is that the local founder ecosystem, I think, is rather different. And uh, that comes, I think, from the fact that to circumvent some of the challenges that I just alluded to, uh, quite some founders choose a way to immigrate out of Russia and uh, set up companies outside of uh, Russia. And I think that's a big miss for the ecosystem because there is no trickle-down effect of success of larger companies and startups actually made it back inside of the community. Despite this, there are great also communities of Russian founders that are outside of Russia that actually try to create these ecosystems and try to make sure that this trickle-down effect happens and the previous generation of entrepreneurs inspires the next one to actually build great things, right? And so those are the three things that top my mind make the ecosystem largely different to European one right now. Oh, couldn't agree more. All right. Let's imagine that you are, or we are in a kind of hypothetical situation. And if you were a policymaker right now, 
what are the specific measures or changes you would make that would significantly change the entrepreneurial environment in Russia? And in particular, that could tackle all your three points that you mentioned right now. I think it starts with politics. <laughs> I think it starts with making sure that there is a strong judicial system that can ensure the positive investment climate, especially this access to foreign funds and support from the foreign companies that will open up the ecosystem to the foreign investors that can come with experience, that can come with money to support the system and with the great talent that I alluded to uh, in my previous point, I believe that it will significantly change the landscape and also will definitely put Russia and the Russian-speaking countries as the market is strongly correlated uh, to the uh, top of the list, along with other great startup ecosystems, such as the one in Munich. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think the answer is top of everyone's mind. It's just that it's implementation, it's a challenge. Yeah. Great. Arseny, let's move the discussion a bit towards your current role as the CTO of Personio. As you referred to this topic of theoretical versus practical education before, to what extent has your education prepared you for this position? And to what extent does your current success come from learning by doing? I think there are a lot of aspects of university education that correlate with the success that I had so far, but also a lot of that uh, is luck. And even a bigger part of that is the network that especially I'm very thankful for CDTM for. And uh, that I believe is the largest asset and the largest learnings also that came out from my university years is to value and cherish uh, this network. But if we would go to a more practical side of things or to, to the side of things that actually come as skills for university, to me personally, it was never the hard skills that got taught in the university. Probably uh, some of you can also relate to the fact that, you know, there is... Uh, not all the knowledge gets retained that even you freshly acquire after a finalized course. And it's more about those abilities to learn, abilities to persevere towards a goal, ability to also work uh, in a team, a network that rather remain as the more steady, steady experiences that you are able to transfer then and build upon the next wave of the skills that you are trying to acquire, right? And... Um, Despite despite this, I think there overall, if I would reflect on my especially time at the TUM, it did create a certain technical foundation, but less in a sense where I remember down to the details how certain algorithms uh, work, but it's more that it builds a catalog of items that I know how they work in principle and I can always go back to if I need to. So that's on the university part of it, right? So that's more about the soft skills, actually, that got retained and remained and correlate with, with, my, with my personal uh, success journey rather than the hard skills. What I think particularly I had to acquire in the way is a lot of leadership skills. I uh, value that uh, CDTM had made a significant dent uh, in my perception of how those leadership skills should shape. Majority of them, especially related to people management and people leadership, I had to acquire on the way. And as a person with a very technical background, I can say that it was a, both a very transformative, but also a very challenging journey for me. Yeah, I would also share that sentiment in terms of the city team experiences. Speaking of leadership, we have a question for you that our previous guest, also a Centerling, uh, Aves Shafiq, has left for you. His question is, why did you want to become a leader? 
I think for me, the most rewarding thing that is correlated with uh, leadership jobs is just the impact that one can have on both the direction of, in my case, a company and, and a team, but also just seeing people flourish. I think that's the most rewarding experience that one can have, right? Seeing that you are able to help somebody to overcome a certain uh, problem that creates a heat of dopamine that I think rarely other experiences, at least for me personally, provide. So that's why I personally enjoy this track a lot. And it's been very rewarding uh, so far to to be able to do that at uh, Personio, the scale that we have reached. Yeah, I can imagine, especially at the super high growth stage that you're in, that must be very exciting. Is there something that you wish you had known before taking a leadership role? Yeah, something that I wish I would have known before I have started on this journey is that the role will change every six months to a year completely. And that's definitely not something that I accounted for. And uh, just to make an example is uh, classically as a uh, startup CTO, you start by building the product together with your founding team. And I think if we would transfer this responsibility to uh, a role, which is more common in the market, this would be something like a senior developer, right? So start as a senior developer, maybe, maybe as a, a mid-level developer. And then if this uh, product finds traction on the market, you need to start building the team around this. So then you switch to the role of an engineering manager, right? And start actually hiring, building the team, building the mission, vision of this team, and operating it together with your uh, product counterparts. Then at a certain point, there's not only one team, there are several teams, and you need to think about how to make sure that uh, those teams scale, all the people are happy, and there is a solid vision to follow. So that pertains to a role, maybe like of a director of engineering or a head of engineering in a classical org, and so on and so far till the CTO, right? So I think till the point when I reached the point of actually doing the CTO job, it took uh, a long uh, time, and I'm still learning continuously, and this role is changing as also our organization grows tremendously quickly. Last year, we uh, doubled in size, where also most of the people joined uh, us remotely during the corona times. Next year, we have the ambition to do a similar growth pattern. And I know that the job uh, will be very different from what I have now. That's why I think the most important thing is to is to retain that ability to learn and ability to be flexible also about your own personal journey. And we talked about this theoretical building. And what I can say is that I wish also somebody back in the days would tell me that I can find most of the answers in, for me personally, it's books, right? So there's great sources of answers uh, everywhere. And despite this opinion that I've heard quite a lot in the past, where if you are a startup founder, don't follow any advices, I think it's ill-rooted. I think it's about finding the best possible uh, advice for this context and understanding from where this, which context this advice comes from, and then pattern match to the best of the ability and apply that. And that's, that are the two things, yeah, the ever-changing role, plus also there are answers out there that are useful to look up, something that I wish I would have known before I started the job. Wow. I hope our listeners will learn from your insights and will take it into account. And in the meantime, I would have another question regarding your professional journey. Given the evolution of your role together with the company, which leadership skills were the most difficult to develop for you? For me, the most difficult leadership skills to develop were two. First one is actually rooted in some of the educational experiences that we have uh, discussed. 
I think as a university student and also as an engineer, you're expected to go as deeply into the context and sort of fish out the answer that fits 100% to the context of what was asked, right? So the initial instinct, I think, that one has to go very deeply. And that combined with this uh, detailed orientedness creates two challenges. First challenge is the ability to communicate to the right level of abstraction, right? Because as an engineer, sometimes yeah, if you get asked a question about a certain technology, your instinct is to provide all the possible information about how this great technology works, rather than listening to the counterpart and understanding what it actually wants to know, right? Probably they want to know how is this technology useful in their context, right? But not necessarily knowing on the detail. So long story short, it's ability to communicate to the right level of abstraction to then enable your counterparts, uh, so business counterparts to be successful. And the second skill, which is related to uh, this instinct to provide answers immediately is uh, ability to delegate and trust the team to figure it out. I think this was uh, and is classically for many people a challenging journey. And uh, for me, it was similarly a, a challenging skill to acquire and I'm still continuing to master it. I think there's no end to, to this uh, journey. Indeed, and there shouldn't be the end. Thanks, thanks, Arseni. Very, very reflective. All right, let's imagine the situation in which you got a feedback that, okay, you need to improve this and this leadership skill. What would be your next steps? Where would you go to find the answer? That's a great question. And I don't think there is an answer that ultimately covers every possible skill, but I can share my uh, personal approach to this. First thing that I would try to do is really analyze where the challenge comes from. And typically it's a combination of uh, context uh, that uh, you're in uh, certain triggers that might cause you to, to either communicate, for instance, uh, to the wrong level of abstraction, or it's just purely lack of skill, right? And, uh, then there are several avenues to cover this. If it's also lack of skill or lack of information, my personal uh, favorite approach is to actually go to the books, right? And read some of the more framework-related advices from them or some of the personal experiences. I can uh, give you one where, uh, for instance, if it would be about ability to give feedback uh, in a uh, way where a person on the receiving end actually understands that we are all in the same boat and this is not uh, a personal attack, but rather an um, opportunity to improve our connection and our setup. There is a book called uh, Crucial Conversations that I personally absolutely love. I'm also going to miss some of the authors' names. I apologize in advance for the audience and to the authors themselves, but I hope we'll be able to find them. So books is definitely an avenue. Another way how I approach this is by talking to professional coaches. If we talk about communication, there are great people out there who know a ton and have also been through identifying weak spots and uh, getting people to work on them. So it's a great, great way to do that. And uh, third one is just talking to your network or people who are greatly known for this particular skill that you're trying to develop in the industry, such as uh, building certain architectures, for instance, or yeah, marketing or whatever the other uh, skills maybe there are and that need to, sh to be sharpened. Maybe one more question regarding mentorship or coaching in particular. At what point do you think people or maybe leaders should, should actually approach professionals? When does it make sense or what are the signals for that? I think there is never a wrong time to approach a professional with coaching. I can share my personal experience. So there's a, 
also a slight difference between mentorship and coaching uh, as to how this uh, is been approached. But as an example also of how CDTM Network helps, one of our early investors coming from CDTM Network, Network was also my coach from the yeah, almost first day of Personio's existence. And this was an absolutely great experience that let me not make certain mistakes that were completely avoidable, but also set me up for success for the next stages of my personal development. So in terms of mentorship and coaching, I think there is never a wrong time to try those two great levers out. Great. Thanks for sharing your experience, Arseni. I'm pretty sure it is a very valuable information for our listeners who are ready to set themselves for success, but looking for the right ways to do so. And speaking about success, we heard that Personio is doing a great job, not only commercially, but also culturally. And I think it is a perfect time to transition to our last block about intercultural environment at Personio. Awesome. All right. Arseni, Marie and I have recently seen research findings from the Migrant Founders Monitor that was recently published, which showed that diversity is a clear success factor for innovation and entrepreneurship. So we were wondering, what does diversity mean for Personio and what role do intercultural teams play there? So Personio has been an intercultural company from the get-go, obviously starting from our founding team. And uh, that planted a very solid seed of the foundation based on which we built the team, which by now has more than 60 nationalities in them spread across five prominent locations in Europe and are uh, continuing to continuing on this journey to, uh, to be the international company that we are. Do you also associate this diversity to more or better innovation or entrepreneurship? And if so, why do you think that is? There is a ton of research, including some of the ones that you've already cited that show that diversity and international cultures are definitely playing a big role and are correlated with innovation and with also great performance in general. I would say that since we've been so early on an international company, it's hard for us to trace it back to like it's not a controlled experiment where we say this is before diversity and this is after diversity. So that's why also overall, every employee at our company plays a huge role in the innovation itself and mm. in making our company great, not only employees with international background. And that's what I think is important, right? It's about people coming from different backgrounds, having different opinions, having different cultural experiences that actually create this environment. And international is definitely a factor, but it's not the only one that creates the highly performant teams and great environment. Yeah, definitely. What are the specific actions or initiatives that Personio has to foster and to also sustain this diversity at the company? I think there's a lot of factors that contribute to us being a very inclusive and safe, also psychologically safe environment. Mm -hmm. And I think it all starts... So there is nothing more uniting than having a great common goal towards which a set of very talented individuals work. So I think having a great culture um, from the get-go helps to uh, create this inclusiveness. Obviously, it's not the only thing. It's uh, not enough just to basically put a great goal and a mission statement and expect that uh, inclusion and diversity will start playing a role in achieving this goal. I think it's also about creating this inclusive culture. And we 
if we talk about international in particular, there are several things that we do, which start from uh, firstly, making sure that people who are relocating to work with us have uh, a great experience being supported in all of the steps. Secondly, it's about making sure that those people feel welcome and included in conversations and having principles such as English first in the company, not only in the meeting rooms, but also at the coffee machine, right? Or the proverbial coffee machine nowadays, right? Are absolutely necessary so that people feel they are a part of the company, no matter which country they actually come to or work with us. There are also other initiatives which are employee-led. For instance, our diversity committee, which consists out of employees that think about how to make Personio an even more inclusive environment and propose various initiatives to make it such. And also to clarify one thing, we talk here a lot about diversity related to cultural diversity, while the topic is actually, as you also know, is much larger, right? It's about mm -hmm. people with uh, people of various genders. It's about uh, people with various also mental specificities and so on, right? And conditions. It's about, yeah, it's about the intercultural aspect, obviously. And there are precisely the angles from which our diversity committee thinks about inclusiveness at the workplace. And I'm um, very happy to have this effort within our company. You just mentioned diversity committee. Can you elaborate on it more? So our diversity committee consists of employees who are passionate about uh, making Personio uh, and work and our workplace a great environment for people coming from, as I mentioned, various cultures, people having also various special needs in regard to the environment, people who also come from the LGBTQ community and so on. And within this committee, there are sort of different subgroups that represent those efforts. And as a collective, they organize uh, various discussions uh, within this committee and outside of it. They also think about how to make one of the initiatives that they led was how to make our communication to the customers more gender inclusive. So using sort of less of the words that I'm also guilty using in this podcast, like, hey, guys, right? So it's using greetings like, hey, everyone, right? To make sure that everyone feels uh, included and so on. So it's, I believe it's a great effort. There is uh, also a great future ahead of it, right? It's something that has started a couple of years back and I'm excited for more things to uh, come from, uh, from our employees there. That's actually amazing structure. And I wish every company had these initiatives to make a workplace suitable for everyone. Now, companies in Munich provide more and more opportunities to English-speaking employees. And we heard that this wasn't the case even a couple of years ago. So Personal was founded in 2015 with the official working language, English. Why or how did you or the company decide about it? So we took the decision to make English our first language as a founder team fairly early on. In fact, it was from the uh, get-go, from the beginning on. There are two simple reasons uh, behind this. Firstly, we wanted to build an international company, so a greatly lasting international company. And I think that it's easier to do so when you start with this mindset rather than when you adapt English after all the culture was born in another language, right, in the company. And the second great motivator for us was to also have access to the international talent pool. And uh, from my personal experiences at various company, I can tell that it's absolutely crucial, as I mentioned in my last answer, to actually have this uh, inclusiveness 
of the experience from the communication side in a company where English first is one of the motivating most motivating factors for people to start at companies which are outside of their home, but where they can still feel included. Previously, you mentioned that employees at Personio communicate in English, even during unofficial settings like grabbing some coffee from a coffee machine and so on and so forth. Can you share some best practices or like principles that help you to kind of implement this at a company level? Because I understand that you can actually control it during meetings, but during an official events, how do you do that? Yeah, it's definitely a, a challenge. However, for us right now, it's less of one because we are also location-wise very spread out team by now, right? So having those five offices where there's actually no dominant language. What I can say that in particular, two initiatives help with making English the first uh, language in all of the locations. First one is is that it starts with leadership, actually, and uh, making sure that when also leadership approaches the coffee machine, language switches from whatever to English, right? And that sets uh, the tone, I believe, greatly. So that's something that we started doing also fairly uh, early on, uh, despite uh, all of us being able to speak German and express ourselves freely. And the second thing that helps with this now, I believe, is that we have launched what we called a culture carrier program across the offices at the point when we started to introduce more offices to the Personio team and Personio family. We wanted to carry this culture, as the program name says, with people who have been with us for a long time and who know how Personio work, yeah, both culturally and functionally. And uh, there is a v volunteering list where people can sign up and then go for a certain period of time prolonged like six months to another office and i think having those people also in the those office locations obviously helps to also keep the international culture going and the english uh, first culture as well both because they carry it but secondly also because there are non-local people continuously present at those locations and that makes communicating in english a first class concern at those offices makes sense so in startups, people often take on leadership roles very early on in their careers. But over time, there's need for more experienced workforce. And maybe there's also higher demand for more experienced people on board from the investor side. Naturally, as Personio has grown over the years, you have assembled a team of quite talented professionals and recently also expanded your executive team and hired senior executives from Uber, Goldman Sachs, TransferWise, Dropbox, <laughs> and sometimes having these newer but more experienced additions to the team can create a bit of a tension between the experienced ones and those that have been there for a longer time but maybe don't have as much experience yet. So what's your observation so far? How has this affected your team dynamic? So what I can say is that in our experience, the higher experience does not affect the culture in a way or the environment in a way that where there are tensions. And there is one reason behind that is that we hire people who have very strong alignment with our operating principles and core values, which form the core of our culture, right? And for us, it's secondary that those people come from Uber, from Wise, from Dropbox. The first thing that we look for is the cultural alignment. 
And as our culture is rooted in the uh, directness of the feedback in things like communication um, being a key or people being driven by impact rather than some of the other things or like material titles, it creates the environment where this political nature, in at least in my opinion or in my experience, is just absent. Everyone is there to work towards the great goal and the experiences that they bring from this hyperscaled organizations that they've been a part of is absolutely great to have uh, aboard because it helps us to to pick and select things that actually work well in our context. As we talked also in the past about context and advices, right? That's where this also comes into play. And uh, those leaders definitely bring those experiences and they know exactly how and what will work. And we create an environment for them which supports them and uh, that is rooted in our culture. You also mentioned impact right now, and Personio's website has a picture of you and your colleagues holding a banner that makes a thought-provoking statement. There is no planet B. Could you please tell us about initiatives that you are taking in the direction of building an organization that is focused on sustainability? Of course, yeah. What I can tell you is here also, again, everything starts with culture. And uh, I mentioned core values and operating principles already. And one of our core values uh, is social responsibility. And social responsibility is not only just the principle for us that we aspire to be, we actually live it with initiatives that you've seen in this poster, but also more so. One of the things that, for instance, we are committed to do is to give 1% of our proceedings after liquidity event to NGOs. And uh, you talked about the Planet B and the Fridays for Future, where the photo comes from. NGOs supporting the climate change are a definite focus of this effort. But this all comes at a later stage. What we are doing on the uh, day-to-day basis are, I can tell you three things at least that we support in regard of making us also more sustainable. Firstly, we are offsetting our CO2 emissions. And uh, also last year, we've already been carbon uh, neutral and continuing on the strand also this year, obviously. Second thing is that connected with the value of social responsibility, we enable each employee in the company to spend one day on what we call impact days. And during the impact day, each employee can select a project. So like a non-profit project to support where quite a lot of them also revolve around the climate change and making sure that we live in a better world. And third thing that I can mention is our sustainability committee. You can probably guess that it has a similar <laughs> similar uh, structure to our diversity committee. And our sustainability committee is a completely employee-led initiative where our employees discuss how to make us a greener workplace and projects that we can support some of the things and that come out from came out from their initiatives, such as we call Personio Green, is our integration with Planetly, and where companies who offset their emissions with Planetly can get a sort of a batch on their career pages, so Personio career pages, uh, and many more things like recycling concept in the office also came out from this initiative. And are there any decisions that you can take as a CTO and as an engineer to push Personio further in this direction? Perhaps something like having a technical architecture that consumes less compute power. Those are decisions that we don't yet take as explicitly as um, 
I wish, but nevertheless, I already mentioned that we are offsetting our CO2 emissions and AWS costs, which is the platform, uh, cloud platform on top of which we're running, are definitely uh, a part uh, of this offset. But also what I can say is that green engineering is uh, rooted in the same principles of good engineering uh, as anything else. And if you're applying it to a cloud-based SaaS software running as a distributed system, it would be things like maximize resource utilization and, you know, pack your containers or whatever instances that you deploy as tightly as possible, right? Or minimize traffic within the network and also to the clients, right? Use caching and things like that. So overall, good engineering correlates with green engineering. And it's definitely our aspiration to continue to meet those criteria. Thanks a lot for sharing the culture at Personio and your goals and aspirations as a company. As a last question for this blog, we want to ask you, what advice would you give to someone who is now thinking about founding their own company and becoming a leader? I'd say just do it. <laughs> yeah, I think the student and university years just adds absolutely greatest time to start a company because firstly, you don't have too many obligations and responsibilities that make it a risky endeavor per se. I think everyone is in absolutely luxurious position in terms of being supported by this network and having the best uh, possible education. So we can just take risks, I think, and that's the most important thing. Thanks, Arseni. It's very motivating. As many of our listeners are thinking of starting their own company straight away after university or getting some more relevant experience before that. All right, great. Now we can move on to our next block, which is our toolbox. All right, Arseni, let's jump right in with the first question. In your opinion, what is the book that everybody should read? So we talked a lot about talent and international. So the book that I read that I think uh, is absolutely inspiring that covers some of those aspects is called The Talent Code from Daniel Coyle. And it's full of awesome stories about the talent hotspots and uh, why those exist. Um, also from connected with some of the science on how brain works. So absolutely love the format and can only recommend it to everyone as it also has a message where it's not about where you're born. It's about how you approach your growth journey. Oh, very interesting. Go straight to my reading list. <laughs> All right. What's an app that everybody should download? I'm a bad advisor on <laughs> which app should everybody should download, but I can tell you that maybe a less obvious app that worked very well for me is called Streaks. It's a habit tracking app. And there was another book that I read that motivated me to use it. It's called Atomic Habits. And mm -hmm. uh, it's basically about yeah starting very small and being persistent. And uh, this app helps me to see how persistent and consistent I am with my efforts. Great. A podcast that you love listening to. I used to listen to many more podcasts, right? But also to, to say the one that I used to listen uh, a lot in the past, I, I'm more actually into audiobooks nowadays, but the one that really helped me was called Software Engineering Daily. For those of you who are more technical, it's a great digest of all the trends and technologies, interviews with the great leaders uh, of the great technology companies and was absolutely inspiring uh, to listen to and uh, to apply some of that in practice. Yeah. Is there a routine that you follow? 
I can refer back to the atomic uh, habits. Overall, my, my routine is fairly usual, so there is nothing that I think would be motivating or inspiring for anyone. But I can tell you that I'm uh, overall an absolute couch potato and the atomic habits, <laughs> uh, atomic habits made me try this very one simple thing of doing a very small workout, but persistently every day. And that's what I start my day with. And finally, who is an innovator that everybody should know about? I can share with you maybe the one that is a bit uh, less obvious and a uh, book about whom I'm reading now. It's a philanthropist whose name is Chuck Feeney. And I think he, in an absolutely non-selfish and amazing way, revolutionized uh, the world of philanthropy and how it's being reasoned about. And if anyone is uh, into the subject, I can absolutely recommend reading this. Cool. I have to check this out. Now, finally, we always ask our guests to ask a question to the next guest. What would be the question that you would like to leave? I would like to ask, what was the happiest time in the next guest's career? We'll definitely make sure to ask this. Awesome. That will be a wrap for the episode. Thank you, Arseni, for being with us and sharing your personal journey and experiences with running Personio, a company that's growing and reaching new heights of success every day. Thanks a lot for having me, Marie and Keke, and uh, looking forward uh, to hearing the podcast. And hopefully uh, some of that is uh, useful for whoever is listening. This season of Mostly Awesome Podcast is brought to you by CDTM, Center for Digital Technology and Management. This episode is a product of great teamwork together with Srajit Zakuja, Ankristin Ga, Yulia Kozlovskaya, and Miriam Schmidt. If you like our podcast and you would like to support our work, please rate us on the platform you're listening on and share episodes with your friends who might be interested in topics we discuss. We'd like to invite inspiring guests with diverse cultural backgrounds to our podcast. Our inbox, podcast at cdtm.de, is open for warm intros. Thanks for tuning in. See you in two weeks. Thank you.